Uh, very often as we enter into Advent, uh, I typically will return to the Gospels for sermon series through the Christmas holidays. I've chosen not to do that. We're going to stay here in the book of Job for at least a good bit of the duration of it. Uh, you may wonder why, but as we begin to unfold things, I'm hoping that you will see why and you will understand why. This book of Job as far as I'm concerned, is one of the most important books in the Old Testament. Why? Because you see Christ plastered all over it and all through it. And the further you go in the, boat, the book, the more apparent his presence is. We are in chapter 11. Three of those friends, or two of those friends of Job have spoken already. Eliphaz and Bildad have spoken. They've said basically the same thing. Uh, the last one left to speak is Zophar, and I'm just going to kind of spill the beans and tell you that basically what he says is very similar to what they have said. And the conclusion that these friends, all three of these friends have come to is this, is that Job is suffering because he is not just a sinner, he's suffering a great deal because he's a really bad sinner. And what he needs to do is just confess it and repent of it. And if he would just do that, then God will once again not only bless him, but that he will bless him even more abundantly than he was blessed before all of this tragedy fell upon him. What we're going to do, as I said before, is we're going we're to consider what Zophar says here, but you're going to see reflected in what he says much of what the other two guys have said already. It's the, act, it, it, it's the, the, the encouragement of, uh, of his friends to, to, to basically live a righteous a life. Uh, and, and by living that righteous life, then you will truly be blessed in physical and worldly ways as a result of it. Uh, so we're going to consider what Zophar adds to that conversation this morning, but then we are going to kind of forget about these three friends, and we're going to skip through the passages that have to do with Job speaking. Because what you're going to find is these guys just say the same thing over and over again. Just maybe a little bit of a different manner, but it's the same thing over and over again. Is that all suffering is a consequence of sin? So if you want to stop your suffering, what you need to do is repent. And if you do that, God will bless you for it. That's the message over and over and over again from these three supposedly wise men. And I would challenge you with the idea that until all of this fell upon Job, until he had this own experience of suffering himself, it was probably exactly the same message that he would have said. He believed the same theology that they did. And it's only through this experience of this severe suffering that Job's perspective on things has changed. And I think right there is enough for us to understand why it is so important for us to study this book of Job. Because we all know what suffering in life is like, and sometimes we have severe suffering, but I dare say that none of us has ever come close to suffering like Job has and is. I mean, here, who here lost all of their children and probably grandchildren in, in one fell swoop in one day? How many people lost 
virtually everything that they owned physically in that same day. And how many people have endured for months and months and months unrelenting physical pain that is with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week for literally months now. No relief. Nowhere to go to hide from it. Chapter 11. The words of Zophar. Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do deeper than Sheol? What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey colt is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. So he's turning to this encouragement. He's talking about you know, why Job is going through what he's going through. But now what he's telling you is to repent, repent. And then you're going to see again at the end of this that if, if, if Job repents, then the promise of Zophar is that God is going to bless him greatly on the other side of it. Verse 13, if you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tent. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish, and you will secure, be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that had passed away, and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the in. Uh, the morning and you will feel secure because there is hope you will look around and take your rest in security will you will lie down and none will make you afraid many will court your favor but the eyes of the wicked will, will fail all way of escape will be lost to them and their hope is to breathe their last I would imagine that Zophar, you know, he sat here and he's listened to these other two guys talk and he's listened to what Job has had to say in response to them. I would imagine that Zophar sees himself as a very wise man. One of those people who listens to what other people have to say before he speaks. Exactly the opposite from Eliphaz. Eliphaz jumped right in there when he was given the opportunity to speak. He didn't listen to what the other two had to say before he said anything. He had all the answers, and he didn't need anyone to tell him what those answers were. 
Zophar, on the other hand, is sat here in silence. Now let me just say this. That the church is and always has been in very great need of wise men. Because what you'll find is this is very often the last person to speak is the wisest one of all. They listen to what others have to say before they throw their words into the mix. There are not too many people that fall into that category, but the church is in very great need of people that like that in every age, in every generation, who do not respond without giving due thought to what they're going to say before they say it and listening to the other side spoken by other people. We have some very heated debates at Presbytery at times which is a good thing, lively debates. We've had some exceptional men represent churches uh, in our presbytery, at, at, at our presbytery meetings, and very often they became men of leadership roles, moderators, and etc. of the presbytery. Many of us have been greatly blessed by those men. There was a fellow that I knew by the name of Chuck Green. He was uh, the moderator of Presbytery when, when I came uh, for my ordination exams. An exceptional man. man who had suffered from post-polio and was, uh, was basically crippled by the time he passed away. And he has passed away now. He is very greatly and sorely missed. But he was the man that uh, when we would have these debates, a lot of people would get up and they would say this, that, and the other, and some would make sense, and some would just kind of, you know, upset the, uh, the apple cart and that sort of thing. And, and eventually what would happen, however, is this, is someone would just, just all of a sudden, they'd say, well, why don't we hear what Chuck has to say? And so someone would ask Chuck Green, what do you think? And Chuck Green was that guy who could take all that had been said and make sense out of it and bring it to a good and solid resolution that would satisfy everybody. Zophar sees himself as that person, but let me tell you, he is not. He doesn't clear the water. If anything, he muddies the water. Even more. Thankfully, we have other men that have stepped up since Chuck Green has passed away. A particular man that is, that is our moderator at Presbytery right now, uh, Lindsay knows him. Uh, he, was, he, he actually helped to, uh, to, uh, with a church plan in... in, in oh north of Jacksonville, when Justin and Lindsay were in Kingsland, Rod Whited, he's the moderator of Presbytery right now, and I see the same kind of wisdom in Rod Whited that we saw in Chuck Green. So hallelujah, Lord, thank you, Lord, for bringing us men like this.
We need them. But Zophar, I would imagine, sees himself as that person. But based upon what he says, he makes it very clear that it's not him. But I just want to encourage all of us to be those who sit and listen to other people. Obviously, somebody's got to speak first, but it should not always be us. There are some people who think that they've got to have the first word on everything. You see that at Presbytery. You see it at General Assembly. There are guys that dominate the microphones. Every single issue that comes up, every question that's answered, there's particular guys that have got to get up there and speak their turn. They do it over and over and over again. And they would see themselves also as that wise person, but very often in what they say, they show that they really are not. He says some very amazing things. He doesn't even, notice here he doesn't speak as long as the other two have. This is, this is pretty short compared to most of the other stuff. But as you sift through it, what you find is he's just basically mimicking back the same things that his two friends, Eliphaz and Bildad, have said to Job. There's nothing that goes beyond that. I want to be clear about some things, and that one of those is Job has not claimed to, to have perfect innocence. He's never has said that. He's struggling, obviously, very much as to why he is suffering the way that he is. It makes no sense to him. I would imagine Job understands this. He's not a perfect person. He knows that he has made mistakes. Why did he spend so much time worshiping God every day? I would imagine there was a good bit of confession of sin on his part during those times. The problem Job is struggling with is this, is I know that I sinned. But have I sinned so much that I deserve this? When I look around at other people and I see how they've sinned so very greatly... Oh, by the way, these three friends of mine, that's what they're doing right now. They're sinning against me and sinning against God in, in, in their, their assumptions and conclusions about particular things. So Job is not really asking the question, why am I suffering? What he's saying is, why am I suffering to this degree? Why is it that my life is so bad compared to other people that I deserve this? But we understand God, and we know that God never gives anyone anything they don't deserve, right? In a sense. Verse 6, Zophar says something that just blows my mind. The last part of the verse, Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. <laughs> What he's saying is as bad as things are, Job, you deserve far worse than what you're getting. There's a sense in which he's right. 
Matter of fact, he is right. I'll say that. The problem that we all have is this, is we do not see ourselves as a very great sinner for the most part. But the sins of other people are very apparent to us. We see the sins of other people very clearly, and a lot of times our own sins are very cloudy to us. So what I want to say to you is this, is there's probably a good bit of these three men, their perspective reflected in the approach that most of us have in living out our faith for God in this world. So what do we do? Well, we keep our eyes on Jesus. (laughs) Because we know this, that his sacrifice, what Jesus endured was far more than even Job endured. What Jesus endured was humanly inconceivable to endure. Christ endured it because he's not only human, but he's also God. The church today, I believe, has a very low view of sin. Uh, neither the severity of it nor the ugliness of it. Have you ever wondered for a minute how it is that hell is eternal? Ever wonder about that? Yeah, Lord, we understand. We understand that people have sinned greatly against you. Why not zap them, fry them, or whatever, be done with them, that be the end of it? Why is it that their torment has to go on for all of eternity? You understand why? Because every sin is worthy of eternal damnation. In other words, what I'm telling you is there is... Nothing that a person will ever do or can do apart from Christ to atone for their sins. That's how bad our sins are. Every sin is the equivalent of cosmic rebellion against God, even those things that you and I would think are these little misdemeanors. What I'm telling you, as bad as hell is, it can go on for all of eternity, but there's not enough suffering and conflict that takes place there to atone for people's sins. Their sins are never atoned for. That's why it's eternal. So what I'm telling you, there's a sense in which Zophar is right when he says, Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. But again, I think all of us, I know that I do, and I'm sure that you do too, we have a low view of sin, especially our own. It's so easy for us to justify it. So easy for us to see sins in in the lives 
and the actions of other people and, in, and hear them in their words. But at the same time, there's a sense in which we have self-blindness. Because we have all of our excuses that we can come up with for why this is what it is. People out there, they, they see my sin, but they don't understand it like I do because I know this, that, and the other. They don't know. And let me just say this, too, that it's impossible for God to judge and punish anyone any more than they deserve. He cannot do that. He will not do that. It would be totally contrary to his character, and he can do nothing contrary to his character. But again, it's so easy for us to just brush off things. And some of us will say, well, I know I have this besetting sin. You know, I'm judgmental toward people. You know, I draw conclusions about other people without really knowing the whole picture sometimes and this, that, and the other. But I would say to you that all of us, none of us have a real clue of what the real picture looks like. If we saw it from God's perspective, our life, we would be horrified. And that is true for every one of us. Verses 7 through 12, Zophar emphasizes the impossibility of the finite, in other words, us comprehending the infinite God, which is a very good point. Let me tell you, when you come to the day when you think you've got God figured out, then I guarantee you, you don't have God figured out. <laughs> the fact is, we are not, and we never will be, divine. Therefore, God is and always will be incomprehensible to us. That doesn't mean that we can't know God more and more, which we will, but we will never, ever get to the point that we fully comprehend God. Because for that to be true, we would have to become God. In other words, God will always, to some degree, be a very great mystery to us. And all of us must humbly acquiesce in having it so. You will never, ever have all of your questions answered. And I really believe this, that God has given us a vocation as believers, and that vocation is knowing him. That the day we came to Christ, we began to know God for who God really is. And with every passing day, that is our vocation, is to seek him more and more in deeper ways, in, on higher ground. And what we're going to find is the more we learn about God, and the more we know God, the more we're going to understand there is to know and to learn about God. And that will go on for all of eternity. We can only know about God what God reveals to us about himself. 
We, on the other hand, he can read like a book. He knows every one of us far better than we know ourselves. He knows what we're going to do. He knows what we're going to say, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, regardless of the circumstances. He knows how we can justify particular sins that we struggle with. And we all do it. It's pretty scary when you consider the fact that we may have secrets from other people. And I'll tell you right now, I have a few from Lori. And I'll probably hear about that later. <laughs> I mean, we all have those deep, dark things in the recesses of our mind and our heart that we don't want anybody else to know about. But the problem is this, is as deep as we shove them, as much as we try to cover over them, God sees them even more plainly than we do. One of the most amazing things to every one of us ought to be this, that God loves me. <laughs> that God even cares about me. Because he knows me like he does. And we know this. There's a sense in which the message of these three guys is true, is that very often we do suffer as a consequence of our own actions, our own sins. But we also know that's not always true. That there are some times when people suffer not because of any bad that they've done, but because of bad that other people do. Christ Jesus is the biggest example of that, but also it's true for every believer. I've said this before as we've been going through this series, and one of those is this, is the Bible, God never promises he's going to keep you from suffering. He never says, I'm going to save you from ever having to suffer again. As a matter of fact, what he does is he promises that you are going to suffer. But the difference is that when you are suffering, I will be there with you. I will not leave you. I will not depart from you. And it almost sounds like in some of the things that Job is saying, it's like he's given up on God. But at the same time, we understand this, that God has not given up on Job. But I would challenge us this morning with this idea, and that is some of us may look around and say, really, I haven't suffered much as a believer. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure that I really suffered as a believer at all. And I would, I would say to you this morning, I would challenge you this morning, that if that is true, it may be it's because you haven't really done a whole lot for Jesus. Because very often it's in the doing of the will of God, it's in the in the knowing of what Christ would have us do, that we, are, we suffer. Like the other two guys, in his closing remarks in 15 through 19, he, he basically promises Job this. You know, your life is terrible right now because of all the stuff you've done, the bad stuff you've done. Well, you need to repent, and if you repent, then God's going to bless you abundantly again. And we know this because we've have the rest of the book, right? We've read the end of the book. You've read the end of the book of Job, right? We know that's how it ends. 
That in the end, God really does bless Job in these ways, even more than he was blessed before. He has a bigger family. He has more possessions. In the end, Zophar is really not saying anything his buddies haven't said already. Some things I just want to make note of. Number one, we, we see Job in the beginning exalted as this great man of righteousness and etc. It would be crazy for us to come to the conclusion that, that repentance had, has not been a big part of Job's picture all through these months of suffering. It's arrogant as all get out for these guys to imply that it must not have been. I would imagine that he's been in repentance from the very beginning of this. But what I would say to you is this, is, is Job, even though I believe he is repentant and he's been repenting, he's doing it for the wrong reasons. Because his theology before all of this suffering fell upon him would have probably been identical to these other three guys. Reality is this, is if Zophar was the one that, that all of this had happened to and, and the Job was with the other two guys and they came to Zophar before all this stuff happened to Job, that Job probably was saying almost exactly the same thing to Zophar that Zophar saying to him. See, there's been a blessing that has come to Job through this suffering. It's opened his eyes up to a bigger picture of God, a, 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 a more perfect picture of what reality is. God promises his suffering, but he does promise he will never desert us in the midst of our suffering. Has God deserted Job? No, Job may feel like he has at times. Let's talk about repentance for just a few minutes. And I want to ask you honestly this morning, how much does repentance have to do, continuing repentance have to do with your walk with Christ? How much is it a very important aspect of your daily prayers? How many of you pray every day? One of the problems that we have today is this, and this has been true in every age of the church. And I can say that because I was one of these people until I was 32 or 33 years old. I looked at the church as this group of people who supposedly cared about other people and this, that, and the other, but I didn't see a lot of caring going on. 
what I saw more often than not was church people who behave pretty much just like everybody else. Not people who had a transformed life. Not people who seemed to really know someone that other people didn't know. But being a Christian is transformational. You change. And let me tell you, one of the biggest encouragements I have as a pastor, I can stand up this morning, I can look upon people, and I can see, look where they are now compared to where they were. There is no other possibility than the fact that God has entered into this person's life, he's become part of them, and they are changing as a result of it. That is the Christian walk. That is the Christian way of life, is change, ever change. Never being satisfied where I'm at. See, this is one of the big problems with these three friends and what was Job's problem before is they were satisfied where they were. They didn't want more of God. They wanted just as much of God as they had to have of God to get all the stuff they wanted. But when you're born again, it's not the end, it's the beginning of transformation where you were one way and, and you're becoming another way. You were one person, now you're a very different person and you're growing. So let me ask you something. Do you see yourself reflected to some degree in this fellow named Zophar? If you don't, you are self-righteous and you're in big trouble. You may not realize it, You may not sense it, but that's reality. The worst service we can do for ourselves, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and for everybody else is to look down our nose at other people. We are all a mess. Everyone in this room is a mess. Of yourselves. You are far more of a mess than you have the conception of what a mess is. It's true for me. It's true for all of you. 
And you know what it does for us? The more we really get to know ourselves, the more it teaches us and presses us on and on, just like you're going to find here in the book of Job, our desperate need for this arbitrator, our desperate need for this intercessor, whom we know is Jesus Christ. Who has done for us what we don't do for ourselves. Who has done for us what we don't even want to do for ourselves. Who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Let's, ref- let's, let's reflect upon Christmas through the eyes of Job. And what we're going to see there, even though it's very faint in the beginning, and it grows more and more as you go through the book. And Job will declare that he knows that his Messiah You know that Messiah, right? He is not satisfied to leave you where you are. He was not satisfied to leave Job where he was. So why would we think for a minute that he's satisfied with us where we're at? Put on your seatbelt. Hold on, because you are in for a ride of your lifetime.